I don't know if you're much of a theater goer, but I read part of a play recently called Incident at Vichy, set during the Second World War, where an upper-class businessman is commanded to present his credentials before Nazi authorities. He presents his university degrees, letters of reference from well-known citizens, his resume, and so on. All that he had and all that defined him. The officer asks him, is this everything? And he nods. At once, the Nazi official throws all of it in a wastebasket by the table, throws it straight in the trash, and says, good, now you have nothing. Now, there's no straight line that we can draw from this situation to ours, or that our situation is even in the same ballpark or on the same planet as what was experienced here. But on some level, many of us can maybe relate to this story. As a result of COVID, there have been things taken or lost, like vacations or the ability to visit friends and family. Changes have been made to our lives and our lifestyles that are completely out of our control. Perhaps during this season, you were mourning the loss of a job that brought you purpose and identity, or even at its most basic level, an income. If you're a student, you're grieving the loss of the closure that comes at the end of a school year, most significantly a graduation. A major one is our health. And for some of us, our perceived invincibility has been shaken or impacted in some fashion. And at its very worst, some have become sick or have experienced loved ones getting sick or even passing away. COVID has impacted us all on some level or another, whether we are experiencing a loss or a disappointment like this for the first time or the first time in a long time. But none of this is new. Many of us have been struggling with disappointment, illness, losses, or unhealthy relationships, circumstances that are unbearable, unalterable, things that are totally out of our control. Today, the systemic issue of racism is at the forefront for us. The world right now is publicly expressing a very Christian ethic of equality and love towards all humanity. We specifically see how many of our brothers and sisters find themselves an impossible situation with a lack of voice, perpetuated violence, and a long-standing inability to do anything in light of the power dynamic. In our series for a time such as this, we are addressing the question, what do you do when there's nothing you can do? What do you do when you are experiencing pain and brokenness and disappointment and are suffering when things are beyond our control? How do we carry on when our circumstances feel unbearable? These moments and seasons can drum up a wide variety of emotions. You know, for more on that, please check out our past series, Who's in Charge? We can sometimes become jealous and resentful to those around us. You know, everyone seems so happy. Why are they, why do they have the family that I wished for? Why do they have the job, the relationship, the bank statement, the clean bill of health, the opportunities, you fill in the blank? that I wish that was mine or that was supposed to happen to me. We can even grow mad at God for choosing this to happen to me or for allowing this to happen. In my short time working at Circle, one of the biggest obstacles in belief in God I hear from people is, why does a good God let bad things happen and more specifically happen to me? We begin to blame God for our circumstances and for our suffering. In the most tender moments of grief, confusion, and sadness, we're tempted to run. We're tempted to abandon hope. We honestly just want to quit, give up, and give in. 
the pain, the disappointment, the brokenness becomes so unbearable at times that we even try to numb ourselves with whatever vice will do the trick. Drinking, substances, overspending, overeating, fill in your vice here. The goal becomes to feel as little as possible. The only conclusions that work are, I'll never be happy again. There's absolutely no good that can come out of all of this. I honestly don't feel like I can go on. Last week, Pastor Paul said that the presence of adversity does not equal to the absence of God. God is not absent, apathetic, or angry. In the autobiography written about Jesus by one of his followers that we commonly know as the gospel according to John, which is found in the second part of the Bible, John tells a story where Jesus shows up at a friend's house after one of his friends had just died. Pastor Paul referenced this story last week. It's the story of Lazarus. John captures Jesus' response, and it's one of the most profound verses in the Bible, and it's only two words. Jesus wept. Through this emotional response, we can see and begin to learn that God is not absent in our pain. He is not apathetic to our suffering or mad at us and punishing us for some reason. God deeply cares for us and is with us in the midst of our pain. That's the kind of God he is. He's a God that draws near in our pain. One of my favorite authors, Pete Gregg says, we expect God to airlift us out of our problems and we call that a miracle. And miracles happen. God intervenes sometimes. I can't tell you why or why not he does. No one but God knows why. But mostly he parachutes in and joins us in the midst of them. If you hear nothing else today, know that you are not alone. God is with you in the midst of your pain, your brokenness, when you're mourning and suffering. C.S. Lewis wrote, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. So the question then that we will be cycling back to throughout this series is, what do we do when there's nothing we can do? Perhaps we can glean some understanding from someone who helped shape the New Testament and the global church. Let's take a look at the Apostle Paul. At the time of Jesus's life, death, and shortly after his resurrection, Paul was a Pharisee which meant that he was a teacher of the law. He was, was a professional religious person. Paul's position as a Pharisee meant that he was opposed to Jesus and his followers. He persecuted, arrested, and witnessed the killing of many of Jesus's followers. But something amazing happened to Paul. Paul encountered the risen Jesus while on his way to Damascus and began to follow Jesus. What this means for Paul is that he left everything all that he had known to now follow Jesus. He leaves his prestige, his job, his fame in his field, his security and his friends. Paul went a long time with no friends to support him. In spite of all that, Paul was willing to take on the known world as his mission field. For more than 20 years, the apostle Paul traveled and planted many churches. And without him, we wouldn't have most of the New Testament and the church and even church online might not have happened as it has. You might be thinking, how does Paul's success and my pain have any relation? Or what does Paul's life and notoriety as a church planter have anything to do with my disappointment or suffering? Well, actually, when we take a deeper dive into Paul's life, we notice that he is no stranger to disappointment, suffering, and pain. 
In the letter to the church in Corinth, Paul lists all that he's experienced in his life to that point in terms of hardship and tough circumstances that he's faced that were beyond his control. That when I read them, they seem unbearable. Okay, I can't even imagine. He starts off in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23 with, I've worked hard. You know, I've put in long hours, which were like, yeah, I've worked hard too. What's your point? But he goes on, you know, I've been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and have been exposed to death again and again. Okay, now you're thinking, yeah, that sounds pretty bad. And yet, Paul goes on. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and day in the open sea and I've been constantly on the move. Let's stop here for a second to catch our breath. Take a step back and look at this list. Paul received five times as many lashes in his life to this point than Jesus received on his way to the cross. If you do the math, that's 195 lashes. On top of that, Paul was beaten with rods three times. We aren't sure how many times per session. He mentions earlier being imprisoned and flogged, which in their own right would have been horrible. And he also mentions being pelted with stones, which wasn't your typical game of dodgeball. It wasn't pleasant. Two more things to note. Paul is shipwrecked three times. He spent at least one 24-hour floating in the open water. If you're keeping score at home, when you read through the book of Acts, which is an account of the early church and where Paul plays a leading role, Paul took no less than 18 trips by ship in his ministry, half of which were taken before the letter to the Corinthians was even written. So that means nine trips and three of them ended in shipwreck. That's a one in three chance of shipwreck. That's crazy. After what number of shipwrecks would you have called it a day? Let us know in the chat. When you factor in all the trips by ship Paul took and all the traveling he did by foot to different cities, some historians say that there is no person recorded during that time that would have traveled as extensively as Paul did. The lifestyle was with not, not without pain and hardship. There was no Trivago or TripAdvisor. Paul goes on to say that in his travel and his work, he experienced danger in crossing rivers and lakes, dangers from robbers on the road, danger from his fellow Jews who opposed him, danger from the Gentiles who were non-Jewish people who he was trying to share the good news of Jesus with, danger in the city, danger in the country, danger at sea, which we've already covered, and danger from people who claimed to follow Jesus and his teachings, but were false disciples. Paul finishes his extravagant list by mentioning that he's experienced many sleepless nights, many days without food or water, and even experienced nakedness from time to time. So why tell you about this list? Like, you're kind of a buzzkill, Austin. The goal is not to compare Paul's hardships and pain to yours and say, oh, yours isn't too bad, or you've got nothing to talk about, just wait until your list looks like Paul. No, that's not the point here. The goal isn't to mitigate your circumstances. The question is, how? How did the Apostle Paul endure all that he did and then keep pressing forward? What did Paul do when there was nothing he could do? In Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, he asks a very similar question. Now, Frankl was an Austrian neurologist and psychiatrist 
who endured the unimaginable suffering of the concentration camps during the Holocaust. In his study as a neurologist and a psychiatrist, he was less concerned with the question of why people died in the concentration camps, because when he looked around, that was pretty obvious. His concern was why anyone survived at all. Like, how could people endure so much suffering and come out the other side? You know, how could people encounter so much pain and brokenness and disappointment and torment and still keep pressing on? When you read their accounts, it's an incredibly long list of the things that they endured. Let's look back at the Apostle Paul again. After a long list given to the Corinthians, he gives one more for the list in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7 to 10. He says, Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given, not cursed with or punished with, but granted. This is a strange way of looking at what he's about to say. A very interesting perspective from Paul. Let's keep reading. I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. This seems like something serious here. A thorn not in the literal sense, but rather an issue that was constant and irritating. The word torment here is to strike with a fist or beat up. This language makes me think that it was something debilitating. To make matters worse, he refers to it as a messenger of Satan. This must have been intense. Some scholars think that it could have been epilepsy, depression, severe headaches, eye trouble, malaria, or a number of different things. It's important to note here that Paul uses present tense language. This was a reoccurring issue. Another thing to add to a long list of circumstances that Paul endured. If you're someone that's experienced heartbreak after heartbreak, terrible news after terrible news, if you've ever been, you've got to be kidding me, seriously again? Paul, understood, Paul understands exactly what you're going through. That's not lost on him. So how did Paul respond to this and all that he's endured? Well, it says that he pleaded with God. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Not once, but three times he begged God to take it from him. For Paul, this isn't a casual ask. It's three intense seasons of prayer where it's like, God, you've got to do this for me. Have you ever been in a season where you've begged God for reprieve? God, would you please help me? Where are you, God? I could really need to be rescued right now. I could really use some relief. Have you ever pleaded with a God like that before? If you have or you currently are, the Apostle Paul gets that. When he's writing this letter to the Corinthians, he understands what you're going through. That's not lost on him. Paul pleads and God responds. Now, Paul pulls out in front of most of us because how many of us have longed for God to speak in the midst of what we're going through? You know, if only God would say something, you know, how comforting would that be? God's response in Paul's situation isn't quite the response that we would hope for. God says no. He doesn't say, yes, Paul, your suffering will cease or be removed. That's not the response. What he does say is this, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Okay, so here we are. Paul has suffered incredibly. It didn't all end when he decided to follow Jesus. He begs God to remove it, but he doesn't. So what are we supposed to do? What's Paul supposed to do? This brings us right back to our question. What are we supposed to do when there's nothing we can do? 
What are we supposed to do when we're experiencing pain and brokenness and our suffering when things are beyond our control? How are we to carry on when our circumstances feel unbearable? In Paul's response to God's response, he uses two incredibly strange phrases. When you, when you look at all that Paul has struggled with and is struggling with, he says, I will boast all the more gladly and I will delight in. What? That sounds absurd. Or is it? Author Harold Kushner writes, forces beyond our control can take everything that you possess except one thing, your freedom to choose how you will respond to the situation. You cannot control what happens in your life, but you can choose what you will feel and do about what happens to you. In these phrases and in his earlier I was given statement, Paul chooses to have a different perspective of his suffering. There is absolutely nothing he can do to change things. Nothing. It would have been so easy just to give up, but he didn't. There was nothing he could do except one thing. He chooses to receive his circumstances with purpose and a promise. He chooses to look at it with a different lens. Paul could have looked at it as, oh, I'm being punished from an angry God or that God doesn't really care about me, so who needs him? Or that God must not exist because if he did, why would he allow this to happen to me? No, he chooses to receive it with purpose and a promise. A promise that God's grace is enough and that his power is made perfect in weakness. Now, I'm not gonna pretend that this is a great answer or even a satisfying one. I can't imagine what you're going through or what you've been through, I can't. I'm not even going to pretend. I'm sure if I sat down with a lot of you to hear your story, my heart would break. The things that you've lost, the dark valleys that you've walked, the depth of the disappointment that you felt, what it would have felt like to sit there and get that diagnosis or hear that devastating news that you've received. It would break my heart to hear those things. Life can break our hearts sometimes, can't it? But in the midst of the brokenness, in the throes of the pain, there is this incredible promise that God is right there. His grace is more than you will ever need. Now, that might not sound all that good right now, but that's something that you can cling on to and hold tight to when there's nothing else to grab onto. Like the Apostle Paul, that even in the midst of what you're experiencing, God loves you so much that he would die for you, that in Jesus, he gave himself for you. God said that my power is made perfect in weakness. When you are at your weakest, God's strength is available. When we feel so close to giving up and giving in and that there's nothing we can do, God is close and we can lean into him for strength. The amazing part of this promise is the fact that in our deepest anguish, God is the closest to us. Right there with his crucified body that knows our pain. The apostle Paul understands that. He saw this Jesus on the road to Damascus. And because of that, he proclaims, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That that is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness and in insult and in hardships and in persecution and in difficulties and in job loss 
and in illness and in grieving and in disappointment and in loss. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. When it's just too much, we can choose to lean into God and even into others. Our natural tendency is to isolate. That's a familiar word right now, isn't it? We isolate from those around us. We don't want anyone to see that we're struggling or people just won't get what I'm going through. The night that Jesus was arrested, he was struggling with what he was about to go through, but he invited his three closest friends to be with him and to pray for him. They had no idea what he was going through, but there they were. Don't isolate. In a time of isolation, obey health health officials' recommendation, but don't emotionally, mentally, and spiritually isolate from others. And as laws are being lifted so that we can meet to connect with someone face-to-face, let them know. Don't hide. Today, let someone know to pray for you. Use Zoom or FaceTime or Skype. Connect with a loved one today and let them know. Whether you're a Christian or not, this is huge. Don't miss this. You are not alone and you don't have to be. If you're going through something, we have people here at Circle who want to be with you and support you with whatever you're going through. Whether that's to sit down with someone to share your story or to connect with with a support network like mentoring or this fall Circle Groups, let us know and we would love to connect with you. Fill out a connection card at the top right of your screen or send us a message on Facebook. We would love to journey with you. It's important to know that when we hurt, we tend to isolate from others. But the other thing we tend to do is isolate from God. We think that he doesn't care or that he's angry or that he must not exist, but that's not the case. It's remarkable that the authors of the gospel let us listen to the prayer of Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. This mirrors Paul's pleading for the thorn to be removed and our cries for God to rescue us. Even Jesus asked for help with his circumstances. And like us, Jesus experienced unanswered prayers where God said no. Jesus still suffered and Jesus still went to the cross. Even though God seems distant, that doesn't mean that he's not there. Don't isolate yourself from God. Continue to push into prayer. We like Paul and Jesus, have permission to ask for our cup to be taken and our thorns to be removed. We can approach our Heavenly Father. In the midst of our pain and suffering, we can hold to the promise that God's grace is enough and that his love for us is so lavish that he would go to the cross for us. And we can trust and lean into him for strength to endure and find purpose in the midst. I want to leave you today with the words of one of my heroes, Corey Temboom, who was a Dutch Christian who survived the Holocaust, someone who'd experienced unthinkable pain and someone who lost all her dignity and all that she possessed, even lost her father and sister in the concentration camps. She says, when a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you know, in other words, when we find ourselves in circumstances that are beyond our control, You don't throw away the ticket and jump off. You don't give up and throw in the towel. You don't isolate yourself. Rather, you sit still and trust the engineer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for today, God. 
Lord, I thank you that you know each person that's watching. Lord, you know each of their stories. God, I pray that they would experience an incredible measure of your love today, God. That they would understand that your grace is enough, Lord. That you love them so lavishly that you would give your life on a cross so that they could experience closeness with you, God. Lord, no matter what people are going through today, God, would they just know that you're close, Lord, that you're near and that you love them. So God, I pray in the midst of whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, Lord, when there's nothing that we can do, God, I pray that we would lean into you, Lord. I pray that we would find you for our strength, God. Lord, I just pray that we are not alone and I thank you for that. I pray this in your name, amen.